This is SciFiGeneration.com's Sci-Fi Time Capsule, a podcast series dedicated to looking at influential science fiction movies and TV in-depth, era by era. I'm Daryl Lockhart, co-founder and editor of SciFiGeneration.com and vice president of the African American Film Critics Association. If you're just joining us, welcome. Scroll back and catch up with episodes one, two, and three. This is episode four, and we're talking about the year 1975. I'm so glad to be back with you to talk about this stuff. Here's where we are. In the late 1960s, new ideas and global influences came together to bring high-concept stories to the big screen, with a few movies that are now famous. Some of those hits turned into franchises and series. Others remain legend. But for a moment, let's take a closer look at the time period. The 70s were a time marked with problems that carried over from the 1960s. Add to those problems a perfect storm of economic issues that hit the U.S., the Great Inflation, the 1973 OPEC oil crisis, and the Great Recession. In 1975, you had the end of the Vietnam War, the end of 17 and a half years of conflict. You had 8.2% unemployment. These are tough times. No real shock that people are going to want to escape and get away. But the coming boom will be about more than that. Science fiction can easily be filtered down to tales of faraway places and other times and distant worlds. But when science fiction is at its best, it's talking about the people who were alive at the time the work is written. The future or past worlds are always really symbolic of the writer's present day. And so, when you have a world at war with weapons of mass destruction and no regard for the environment, you get cautionary tales of humanity losing their place as rulers of the earth. Consider your favorite piece of science fiction, book, movie, TV series. Consider the art. What does it say about you? What does it say about the time you grew up in? How does your perspective, your age, your place in the world, how does that influence your nostalgia for your favorite science fiction? For science fiction fans who grew up in the 1970s, there are as many ways to answer that question as there are titles we'll discuss in this series. And that's my hope with Time Capsule. My hope is that you'll learn about the many different ways artists and authors in the 70s tried to say, this is who we are, or this is who we want to be, and perhaps look at your own world. Now, before I get into this episode, I want to address something that I forgot from the last episode. I neglected to talk about Sid and Marty Croft's Land of the Lost, which made its debut on Saturday morning TV in 1974. The stop-motion animation dinosaurs combined with the actors in the suits and wild sets made it a hit. Or maybe it was a theme song, or maybe it was the idea of another dimension that you could access from a river in Colorado. The show was all about the adventures of Rick Marshall and his children, Will and Holly, who get trapped in an alternate pocket universe after plunging through a dimensional portal while on a family rafting trip. Spencer Milligan, the actor who played Rick, left the show after two seasons due to a disagreement about merchandising royalties and was written off in the storyline where he fell through the portal of time and went home, leaving his two kids alone. Uncle Jack Marshall then shows up in similar clothes to join them and hopefully get them home. Now, Uncle Jack showed up because, well, he had been searching for them the whole time, of course. The land, as is described, is inhabited by dinosaurs and the Pakuni and these lizard humanoid creatures called Sleestack. 
These characters were in all three seasons, and it's implied that there were lots of Slee Stack, but there were only three costumes ever created for the season. And this is why you never saw more than three at a time. And in those rare times that you did, those scenes were actually edited with extra footage to give the impression of larger number. This was, as you can imagine, a very expensive show to produce. And so after three years, it was canceled. But it was three seasons that would contribute to the dominance of Sid and Marty Croft on television. And this reminds me, of course we know that sci-fi on TV wasn't new by any means. We've had popular sci-fi shows on TV since the medium was introduced. But in the 1970s, we started to see some really expensive shows. Also, some of the wild ideas in science fiction were starting to take shape. Computers that may have taken up entire rooms in the 1950s and 60s, but those rooms were getting smaller in the 70s. We'd seen humans walk on the moon on TV. So ideas that may have seen way out there just 10 years previous, they were becoming commonplace now. Part of this rapid progress was the increase in TV at the time. As TVs became a little bit cheaper, they were in more and more homes. That means more opportunities to sell ads, which means networks needed more content. And what better place to get that content that sells than to tap sci-fi ideas? After all, it worked for Flash Gordon. Sci-fi was a large part of Saturday mornings on TV. People grew up on this stuff. And back in these days, you can get away with a lot on Saturday morning. There was no streaming, so kids and adults sort of had to watch whatever you gave them. As a result, what we got was an interesting mix of live action and animated series of varying quality. A lot of them were sci-fi related, of course. Some of them were even good. Now, if you've been with us so far, you remember that Hollywood went absolutely bananas, sorry, for apes. Planet of the Apes was such a huge success that a series of movies were greenlit. And remember last episode, we talked about the live-action TV series that was launched. That was horrible and didn't work. And so, of course, the following year in 1975, there will be an animated series. Oh, yes. there were five films and the TV series. Unlike all of them, Return to the Planet of the Apes was set in a technologically advanced society. There was film, uh, TV, there were cars. The animated series was set a lot closer to the original novel and early concepts for the first Apes movie. So just as we talked about in the last episode with Star Trek, the budgetary constraints of live action didn't exist for the animated series. So you could do more, show more. Now, Roddy McDowell was not involved with this project, and it's, the, it's only the second Planet of the Apes project that we can say that about, the other, of course, being the second film, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. This series ran on NBC Saturday mornings and was produced by DFE, an animation studio that had its assets rebranded as Marvel in 1981. But Doug Wildey, who was co-creator of Johnny Quest, took on most of the creative control of the series as associate producer, storyboard director, and supervising director. Now, Wildey was not exactly a super fan. He'd only watched the original film from 1968 and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And because this is all he knew, that's what he based the show on. So if you're not a big fan of Escape, 
Conquest, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes, this may have been a show you'd enjoy. The plot concerned three American astronauts who travel through time into Earth's far future. They find the world populated by three groups. Mute humans who inhabit mostly desert caves, um, underdwellers who live, on, of course, under the ground, and civilized apes who run the world. The cast featured characters from those previous films and TV series, including Nova, General Urko, Zira, Cornelius, and Dr. Zaius. The show wasn't received particularly well, and while there was talk of a three-episode season two finale, the 13 episodes that ran in 1975 are all there are. Perhaps the lesson learned here is that too much of a hit thing is too much. Chosen from among all others by the immortal elders Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, Mercury, Billy Batson and his mentor travel the highways and byways of the land on a never-ending mission to right wrongs, to develop understanding, and to seek justice for all. In time of dire need, young Billy has been granted the power by the immortals to summon awesome forces at the utterance of a single word. Captain Marvel, which, remember, is not the Marvel Comics character, but the character currently in the pages of DC Comics, had a popular series on CBS. The show starred Michael Gray as Billy Batson, a teenage boy who can transform into a superhero by speaking the magic word Shazam. Captain Marvel himself was played by another actor, actually two actors. He was originally played by Jackson Bostwick and then later by John Davey. Les Tremaine played Billy's guardian, who was literally named Mentor, and the two of them drove around in a 1973 Dodge Open Road RV with a big lightning bolt on red in the front, you know, to blend in. And the show ran from 1974 to 1976 on CBS's Saturday morning lineup, and this show sold some merchandise. So it's no surprise that Filmation, who produced it, wanted to keep it going. What was interesting is that they didn't go to the DC Universe to find a character to keep it going. They created one. From 1975 to 1977, this show was known as the Shazam Isis Hour and included Isis, who would be, and the show would later become known as The Secrets of Isis, uh, about an ancient Egyptian superheroine resurrected in the body of a schoolteacher that finds an ancient mystical gold amulet on an archaeological trip. The amulet gave the wearer the powers of the animals and the elements, which would be bestowed upon such wearer by the goddess Isis whenever it was exposed to the sun and her name invoked. Oh, my queen, said the royal sorcerer to Hatshepsut, with this amulet, you and your descendants are endowed by the goddess Isis with the powers of the animals and the elements. You will soar as the falcon soars, run with the speed of gazelles, and command the elements of sky and earth. 3,000 years later, a young science teacher dug up this lost treasure and found she was heir to the secrets of Isis. And so, unknown to even her closest friends, Rick Mason and Rennie Carroll, she became a dual person. Andrea Thomas, teacher. Almighty Isis. And Actress Joanna Cameron appeared as Isis and her alter ego, science teacher Andrea Thomas. Now, Andrea wore the necklace all the time, but, you know, Clark Kent effect. The whole town and school never put it together. Now, this was a pretty well-thought-out TV universe for 1975. 
Isis appeared on three episodes of Shazam, and John Davy appeared as Captain Marvel in three episodes of Isis. Season one of Isis had 15 episodes and was the second half of the Shazam Isis Hour on CBS. The show starts out with an episode about alleged UFO sightings. Today, the rights of the character are controlled by Universal Television, which actually owns the rights to most of the filmation catalog and character, which kind of makes you wonder what they're waiting on. Now, there's a character that's pretty ISIS-like on the CW Network's Legends of Tomorrow series, and there's an episode of the series Smallville that was called ISIS. It's the one where the amulet takes over the body of Lois Lane. Diane Pershing did a voiceover of ISIS, on the Freedom Force segment of Filmation's Tarzan and the Super 7 show, which will come in 1980. And Filmation would bring back the character again in 1981 on a show called Hero High. But largely, a live-action TV series about a superheroine with a secret identity sounds a lot like... Fall of 1975 saw the debut of the new original Wonder Woman. Now, of all of these shows, Wonder Woman is the least kid-friendly and probably the least sci-fi, but we will dance a lot on this line a lot in this decade. And by now, you know the story. Diana Prince is really Princess Diana of Paradise Island. Steve Trevor lands on Paradise Island, and Diana brings him back to the U.S. and stays to fight the bad guys. In 1974, Kathy Lee Crosby donned the, well, the tracksuit and holds the crown as the original live-action Wonder Woman. But even a made-for-TV movie with Ricardo Montalban as a villain wasn't enough to get ABC to pick up the series. Linda Carter and a costume change, on the other hand, that worked. But in addition to the taller, dark-haired actress, the casting and style of the show was different. Lyle Wagoner, who's best known before this for his work on The Carol Burnett Show, became Steve Trevor, and the chemistry between he and Carter proved to be magic. Wonder Woman was a primetime show and commanded ratings that beat many of its rivals. So along with shows like The Six Million Dollar Man, also a primetime evening show, these shows challenged and changed the face of primetime adventure. In an era where we had not seen a man fly yet... Wonder Woman was a clear indicator that audiences still loved superheroes. Women are the wave of the future, and sisterhood is stronger than anything. Let's talk about this for a moment, because this comic book thing, right, it wasn't really new, but it really exploded after the 1970s. This series of comic book-based shows was not exactly a random gamble for networks, not really. Let's look at how we got here in this series. In 1968, a few really popular books were made into movies that transformed the industry. And in the history of Hollywood, that's usually how it works, quite often. The Godfather was a book. Jaws was a book. And while Jaws was optioned and Spielberg was attached to the project before most people ever saw the book on shelves, the subject matter was clear. This was going to do at least reasonably well. With comics, you have something else, something special. You have data on sales from newsstands. 
issue by issue. You not only know how many people like Superman, you know who the most popular villains are based on sales. So while committing resources to a series that brings those characters to the screen is a risk, it's not exactly a huge one. In the 1970s, so long as you chose something that was in line with what sold, generally speaking, you're good. Even the choice to do Isis, a new character, wasn't a huge risk. Clearly, a woman superhero was a great idea. It was just a matter of how to introduce her. Now, the cost of a single book in 1975 was 25 cents. In that same year, we witnessed the death of the horror suspense comic category. I mean, horror suspense comics were dead. It was over. Marvel took a huge hit, canceling around 15 different titles, and DC canceled four. Indie horror titles closed. Even the one mystery series published under Archie folded that year. But check out what takes place. Giant Size X-Men number one drops in 1975. X-Men is not a new title in 1975. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created the series back in 1963, but Giant Size X-Men number one is the first appearance of Colossus, Storm, Nightcrawler, and Thunderbird. This changes the face of the X-Men, literally. Also, Marvel's Uncanny X-Men had a new writer come on board in 1975, Chris Claremont. Chris would go on to write X-Men for the next 17 years continuously. He developed a Wolverine character into a fan favorite. And honestly, if you're an X-Men fan, there's a really good chance it's probably because something Chris had a hand in. So the tone of comic books were changing in the 1970s. And as we talked about before, we started to see anime and manga titles hit American shelves. So at this point, even post-code, the comic book code, Comics are becoming a little counterculture. New ideas, new stories. This led to big change in the business and led to the business you know today. When we come back, more sci-fi TV from 1975. This is SciFiGeneration.com's Sci-Fi Time Capsule. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section, when dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL. Opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them, just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting in homes across the country. And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets. Anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Welcome back to Sci-Fi Time Capsule for 1975. Earlier, I spoke about Land of the Lost. And you know, Sid and Marty Croft 
were really a hit or miss machine at this point. They had shows on two of the three major TV networks and a creative freedom that was really amazing. They made hits, weird shows that you wouldn't think would stick. Land of the Lost was a definite hit for sure. But a show about two androids traveling through time with a kid from Chicago and his babysitter? Not so much. Give this context. Someone walked into a room and said, Ruth Buzzy and Jim Neighbors are android with a pet that's half horse and half dog. And they were allowed to finish the pitch and they weren't thrown out of the room. That fact alone makes this a worthwhile show to discuss. There were 16 episodes of The Lost Saucer, which was about two time-traveling androids from the year 2369 who land their flying saucer on Earth in 1975. They invite a young boy named Jerry and his babysitter Alice to check out the interior of the UFO and the people get in and it's all fun and games until other people, the neighbors, start gathering and looking. This is the thing that scares the androids who proceed to abduct these children and take them into time. Jerry and Alice then become, uh, in Doctor Who speak, companions going from place to place until they can safely be returned home. Now, why, since they had a time machine, they couldn't just be returned to the day before, is only part of the problem. The techno babble on this show was more laughable than the jokes. And you had Ruth Buzzy and Jim Neighbors in this comedy show. This wasn't just a show for kids. This was a show where you had to suspend your understanding of technology, physics, and along the way, learn some lesson about getting along with people. Sid and Marty also had the Far Out Space Nuts, which ran for 15 episodes on CBS. This show starred Chuck McCann, Bob Denver, and Patty Maloney, mostly Bob and Chuck, who played Junior and Barney, two NASA food specialists who were loading food onto a rocket when pressing the launch button instead of the launch button launches them into space. The launch button. Just like the Lost Saucer had Doris, which was the half-dog, half-horse pet that that you couldn't ride, so I'm not sure why those two species would have been crossbred. But this show had Honk, which was Barney and Junior's furry alien pet. Meanwhile, over on the BBC, the original Survivors made its debut, created by Terry Nation, who we'll talk about in in later shows, who's co-creator of the Dalek character storyline of Doctor Who, Survivors is about a group of people who survived a plague known as the Death, which kills about 4,999 out of every 5,000 human beings within a matter of weeks of being released. Weird math, yes, but a very scary premise. This show ran for 38 episodes across three seasons. There was The Invisible Man. Now, this is the second television series with this title. And this is the one that actually uses the title, The Invisible Man. I mean, it's one of H.G. Wells' most popular story ideas. But 
For a while, invisibility was all over the place. This version of the show starred David McCollum, which he was best known for at that time for his role on The Man from Uncle. And he starred as the scientist Daniel Weston, and Melinda Fee starred as his wife, Dr. Kate Weston. The show made its uh, debut in the U.S. in 1975 on NBC and was created by the now-famous Harv Bennett. After the reception of the pilot TV movie, a 12-episode series aired later that year. There was also a Canadian production called The Undersea Adventures of Captain Nemo. Produced in 1975 by Rainbow Animation in Toronto, this series followed the underwater adventures of a Captain Mark Nemo and his two young assistants, Christine and Robbie, in their nuclear power submarine, the Nautilus. So it's both an introduction to some Jules Verne and a short science fiction science education show. Now, the show was created by Al Guest and Gene Matheson, who were also the producers and directors, as well as the writers. Now, if you were in the U.S., you saw this as part of Captain Kangaroo on CBS. And in Canada, it was part of each episode of a show called Peanuts and Popcorn on CBC television. Each of these episodes were only five minutes long. Now, sci-fi on TV obviously went beyond Saturday mornings, though subject matter wasn't always that far a leap. Stowaway to the Moon was a made-for-TV movie adapted from a novel of the same name by William Roy Shelton. This movie starred Lloyd Bridges and also featured actual astronaut Pete Conrad, who actually walked on the moon. It's about an 11-year-old boy who dreams of space travel and goes so far as to sneak aboard an Apollo mission to the moon. During the mission, the kid interacts with the trained astronauts and learned a lesson that many of us need to remember. Space travel ain't easy. I'd say the highlight of the story is the detail shown over the course of the mission. It's old tech now, but at the time, it was pretty impressive stuff. Civilian travel in space is definitely told better in other movies and books, but this one, told largely from the perspective of a kid, is probably responsible for inspiring a couple people who work at NASA today. Because I got such a good look at the lay of the land, I knew I could do it. I really did. I had this dream of flying in space, but until that moment, that's all it was, a dream. The timing seemed... The Changes is about an alternate reality in England where sudden noise emanating from all machinery and technology causes the population to destroy said technology and machinery. The resulting upheaval displaces many people in England and reverts society to a pre-industrial age where there is deep suspicion of anyone with machines. Like, you, you can't even say technology in this story. Even the words for technology are taboo. So it's really interesting in that regard. And this series, The Changes, is seen through the eyes of a teenage schoolgirl named Nikki Gore. 
it's broken down into 10 parts. And this, in this series, traces Nikki's quest to not only reunite with her parents as she's been separated, but also solve the mystery of what happened. Now, one more super important science fiction television event happened in 1975, and I cannot go one more minute into this program without going into it. Jerry and Sylvia Anderson are known, to this point, for shows like Thunderbirds with marionette puppets and UFO, which is like a slick, futuristic, live-action sci-fi. The Andersons had many successful shows, and I can do an episode on this one production company alone. But in 1975, things are changing. The phone wasn't exactly ringing off the hook that year. Jerry had just tried to return to the puppet style of production with a television pilot for a series called The Investigator, which you never heard of because nobody wanted that show. So he took elements of what was going to be a second series of UFO, a base on the moon, alien first contact, and created what was, at that time, the most expensive television series ever made for British television. Now, when you think of British science fiction in the 70s, you don't exactly think of big budgets at all, let alone cutting-edge effects, brilliant vehicle design, and big American TV and movie stars. But that's what you got when you watched Space 1999. If you've never seen this show, you must. It's an important set of stories, and for one's first intro to British science fiction or to TV science fiction, it's great. This is a futuristic show that's set in a then-futuristic 1999 when a thermonuclear explosion on the moon's surface, caused by the storage of nuclear waste there, blasts our moon out of orbit and beyond our solar system through interplanetary space. The main characters lived and worked on a moon base named Alpha. What makes this show most interesting is that the show has both a main set and on the moon base, and as the moon passes worlds on its journey, the show can also take place on other worlds. The moon, as it passes other planets, can orbit around one for a while before it spins off and continues its journey. That's how it's explained in the show. Now, the stars of the show were then-husband and wife actors, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, who had gained international fame with the TV series Mission Impossible. Now, Space 1999 ran for two seasons, 48 episodes in total, and the tone between the seasons is almost night and day. There are two different styles of intro credits and musical themes, a huge difference in uniforms between the seasons, and a couple of important cast changes. And there's a reason for that. The second season was originally set to start production in the fall of 1975. After an analysis of the first 24 episodes, Anderson started to improve the show, even to the point of having new scripts and stories done. But all material, including those scripts, had to be approved by ITC's New York office. At first, ITC decided to cancel the show, and the main reason for this was that the show's weakest market was the United States. Adding to this, the show needed a new producer. 
Essentially, they had to replace Sylvia Anderson. She and Jerry were in the early stages of their divorce. They decided to go with a high-profile American staff writer-producer, one who would know the magic formula to get Americans to watch. So they got Fred Freiberger as producer and showrunner. Fred, of course, is a science fiction TV legend with credits that go all the way back to 1953. He had produced the third and final season of Star Trek, the original series. But depending on who you talk to, he also had another reputation. So Fred has written for lots of popular and successful shows, including Emergency, Starsky and Hutch, Ironside, All in the Family. He even worked as a story editor at Hanna-Barbera on the TV series The New Scooby-Doo Movies and Super Friends. But partly because of what's about to happen in this story... He was also known as the show killer. Jerry and Fred pitched an idea of a new series, a new season of the show anyway, with the addition of an alien character to Moonbase Alpha's team, one who would shake up the dynamic of interaction on the set and get viewers in the United States engaged in the show. And so we meet the shape-shifting psychon named Maya, and the series was renewed for a second year. It worked. There was also the situation with the set, uh, specifically main mission, which is the main part of Moonbase Alpha that you see in most of the show. It was huge and apparently difficult to light, so the set was slimmed down. Now, the Eagles were the reusable space vehicles based at Alpha. They were a unique design and were responsible for all of the moving between the moon base and the planets that the crew visited. This is an iconic part of the show's contribution to science fiction history, and they were particularly fascinating because they were based on science and technology that we were starting to see on TV from NASA modules and landing craft. You really believed that these eagles could land and take off. Well, the show ran for another 24 episodes. While you had an American showrunner on board now, the second season is pretty British. It turns into Monster of the Week pretty quickly, and the stories were never really as engaging as the first year. There are high points, of course, but for the most part, at least for me, season one is the best. Fred would go on to produce the final season of the Six Million Dollar Man and the short-lived Beyond Westworld series, and we would see some of the cast in other shows after Space 1999 ended. Martin Landau, for example, did everything from X-Files to Entourage afterward, The Anderson legend continues. Even today, there's an animated version of Thunderbirds out. But after season two, Space 1999 came to an end. Until, years later, a sort of final episode was released. It was on the DVD set of the Anderson show UFO. In it, we learned that the moon base was abandoned for a nearby planet. We cannot know if you will receive this message, or if memory survives or even exists in your time of who we were, what our purpose was, and the disaster that took us on our random journey through the infinite reaches of space and time. We calculate it is some 20 years since we lost contact with you. For us, this has been a time of dangers overcome, knowledge revealed, of mysteries encountered, perceptions altered, 
and a growing conviction of a higher purpose in everything that we have witnessed and endured. These long years have stretched to the limit our will to survive as individuals and as a community, and overcoming our greatest test, the struggle to hold true to our unique birthright, the humanity that is common to all of us. From I don't know about you, but I need a moment to process all of that. So, let's regroup and gather back here for the rest of 1975. We still have to talk about movies. So here's the deal. When we come back, we will cover some familiar ground, giant monsters and futuristic apes. But we will also go beyond that. We'll step back and see the planet Earth in all her sci-fi futuristic glory. And we'll talk about the rise of a certain movie studio that will start to make a mark in our genre. Let's call it episode four, the sequel for SciFiGeneration.com's time capsule for 1975. I'm Daryl Lockhart. See you next time.